0: Hello, everyone. This is Reb Brad, and you're listening to the Soccer Chaplains United podcast from the Touchline. While we're wrapping up the month of January, my best mate, Fraser K., has been lending his talents to us with his writing and his narration, as we hear about King David's abuse of power and position. David's fall from grace and his abandonment of kingly duty means he needs the grace of God in his life to help him recover. Well, first, a word about Fraser. Fraser's been a good friend for many years Hailing from Scotland, we met in Colorado at seminary. He lives and works in Glasgow today. He's written several books and narrated a few audiobooks. You can find his works on Amazon by looking up his pen name, Fraser K. K is spelled K-A-Y. His other biblical monologue, The King's Table, was part of our podcast in January 2019. So if you've enjoyed this, you should go back and listen to last year's podcast as well. Today, we hear parts five and six, the finale, in the abuse of power and the grace of God. I'll come back after the narration to offer a few reflections and a prayer to close.
1: He's found the space, and he's found the back of the net! Just a little off foot, thinking he's going to go far post. Not strong enough with his right hand. Whips that one in. Far post almost made him in, and they have! Talked about, you're not going to be able to sustain that kind of pressure. To the corner, goes towards the near post, and you're the angle. What a goal! What a goal! The abuse of power and the grace of God: a biblical monologue featuring David, king of Israel, two years after murdering Uriah and taking Bathsheba as his wife. Written and narrated by Fraser K. Part 5 Judgment Over the next few months I pondered the great weight of Nathan's message. Broad daylight. Out of your own household. Who or what could that mean? Someone close to you. Joab? A family member? A servant who is part of the family? Public embarrassment, loss of respect, but not loss of my role as a leader, it seems. I'd been forgiven, but Nathan made it clear there would be consequences. God had given me so much, now he was going to take some of it away. Not long after Nathan departed from the palace, our child became sick, really sick. Bathsheba was beside herself. So was I. My chief secretary took temporary charge of national matters, giving me the shortest of briefings each day. Hours turned to days, everything becoming blurred. Have you ever sat with someone who was desperately ill and watched them fade away? He was so small and helpless. It wasn't his fault it was mine. I'd done all the manoeuvring, the stealing, the killing. I pleaded with God, denied myself food, but the boy didn't get better. He grew pale, his breathing irregular. I buried myself away, appealing to God, dressed in sackcloth, crying out, lying on the ground all night. I knew I was better there while Bathsheba, her attendants and the physician were in the next room, giving the child the best possible care. A few officials encouraged me to get up and eat, but I refused. I reasoned that if God had allowed the child to fall ill, then surely he could heal him. God had been gracious to me so many times. Could he not be so again? Day seven arrived. I hadn't shaved, eaten or changed my clothes since the child fell ill. Tiny lines of blood, like thin cracks on a wall, ran across both my eyes in all directions. Underneath, they became as black as a raven. I heard a group of the servants whispering outside the open doorway, and as I looked across, I could tell by their looks. That was it then. They confirmed my worst fear. The child was dead. I knew the boy couldn't come back. But I would see him again one day. I would go to him. But he would not come to me. I got up right away. Washed. Put on some lotion. Changed into my normal robes. And headed straight for the temple. The servants were confused. Polite, but confused. I couldn't blame them. They appealed. O king, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. People normally fast and weep when someone dies. They don't do it in reverse order and get up and eat after the person is dead. But I knew what I had to do. I had fasted, believing that perhaps the Lord might be merciful and let the boy live. There was no point carrying on fasting once he was gone. For weeks afterwards, a dark cloud hovered over Bathsheba. An affair, a dead husband, and now a dead child. A man and a boy taken from her. A more sunless time in life I cannot recall. And it was all my doing. I put my arm around Bathsheba and ensured her chief maid saw to her every need. In my role as a leader, I was not going to compound my mistake by neglecting her or using her as I had done before. She was now my wife. That I could not change. Four months later, she discovered she was pregnant again. It seemed too good to be true. Surely there was no impending death hanging over this child. Bathsheba bloomed once more, and with no prophetic words about death, it felt easier all around. And thankfully, the birth involved no complications. Another boy? Bathsheba's smile returned. She had something to hold on to and care for again. I named him Solomon. It means peace. The boy would grow up to be a man of peace, a man of gentleness. I'd seen enough violence in my time. Hopefully he'd have it differently, be different. Not long after he was born... My attendant informed me that a visitor had arrived to see me. Nathan. I gulped. Hard. What could this message be about? I racked my brain. Had I hidden anything from God? Had I mistreated some poor person? Taken anything that was not mine by rights? The fact that I began retracing my actions over the previous few months at least told me my mind was awake, that my senses were not completely dull. Perhaps it was not bad news after all. I welcomed Nathan into one of the interior rooms. He smiled and we exchanged the briefest of pleasantries. He didn't mention the past or our past meeting. He respected my role and I respected his. God was lord over both of us. Just like last time, he got straight to the point. No story this time, though. The child God has graciously given you. You are to give him the name Jedediah, because the Lord loves him. That's what the name means. I lowered my head and nodded. Nathan was obediently delivering a message but I think he felt what I was feeling. God was being incredibly, incredibly gracious. I was going to have another child by the same woman I'd stolen from another man. And here was God sending a personal message of encouragement. Names mean a lot in our culture. And if God puts a name on someone, you know the consequences are far-reaching. God's promise of a dynasty, a man always on the throne after me, an everlasting kingdom, was not over. God would remain true to his word. Once again, I had tasted the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God had been gracious to forgive me and not remove me from the face of the earth. Now, this second child Bathsheba and I had was someone extra special to the Lord, This may well be the one of whom Nathan spoke before, who would succeed me and build the temple I had in mind, and in the middle of the situation I'd brought about. Part 6. The Crown. It was near the end of this dark period that news came of a breakthrough in the advance against Rabbah, the Ammonite capital to the east. While I had been in a state of rebellion and dealing with the aftermath, Joab, the army commander, had managed to cut off the capital's water supply. Now it was only a matter of time. Thirst or suicide would kill them if we didn't break through one of the city walls first. Joab, being the tough leader he is, wanted to press home the advantage now that we had them by the throat. He could have gone ahead himself, but despite being a difficult man at times, he was an effective commander. He got things done. As things went, if he led the charge, the city would be renamed the City of Joab, or New Joab. Can you imagine? That would make it awkward for both him and me. It wasn't his kingdom he was extending, it was mine. So he sent me a message. Now, muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise I will take the city, and it will be named after me. I dispatched the rider to inform Joab I was coming right away, and took a small group of horsemen from among my palace guards. We convened with Joab a short distance from Rabah at the tent he had set up as his temporary battle headquarters. On the way, we passed flattened villages. In every direction, pillars of smoke rose up high above the horizon. There were bodies by the roadside and the odd stray donkey wandering about having lost its owner. Joab and the troops had done a brilliant job suppressing the Ammonites. Soldiers were stationed in all their key towns and already the local Ammonite men were being sorted out for deportation to some of our brick-making facilities in Israel. Our various army captains knew the extra labour would be excellent for some of the building projects I had in mind. After nine days, we broke through the eastern wall of Rabah. Their elite guards put up a good fight, but their thin frames and gaunt faces said it all. It felt good, leading from the front again, Far less risk of taking another man's wife when you're going about what God wants you to do. Milcom, their king, became cornered inside the stronghold and surrendered to avoid the rest getting slaughtered. When he was bound and brought to me, I removed the crown from his head. Made of solid gold and covered in stunning precious jewels, it weighed over 70 pounds, the weight of a small child. No one had ever seen anything like it before. Some of the men around me smiled as they picked up the crown and set it on my head. It was so heavy, I had to keep one hand on it. I smiled as well. It was like a small ceremony. King over all Israel. Now, the king of Ammon and his entire country were my subjects. It felt good. We piled up precious stones from their treasury and demolished the remainder of the city. The next day I gathered the captains with Joab and we sorted out who would remain in Ammon in charge of a few garrisons, enough to prevent any uprising. Not that that would happen any time soon. Their country now resembled a battered dog with its legs broken and sharp front teeth ripped out. When I returned I told Bathsheba It was like being crowned ruler all over again. She grinned as she held little Solomon in her arms. She quipped, The only thing missing was a prophet anointing you, and a cheer. Long live the king! As I reflect on it, taking Rabah was pertinent, symbolic. Two years ago, I'd sent Joab out against the Ammonites, instead of leading the charge. "'being up front with him. "'It's like I'd taken off my crown, "'stopped taking responsibility. "'The following spring, "'I'd stayed at home at the palace "'instead of going out to war like any normal king. "'Failing to hold fast to the Lord "'as I executed my role was the root of the problem. "'I'd lost my zeal for my role "'because I'd lost my zeal for the Lord. "'My heart had become a millstone.' But now I'm back where I should be, doing the things I should, seeking God, leading diligently, taking responsibility instead of taking others' lives, using my power for good. Even though there are some tough consequences coming my way, the Lord has not left me. He will be with me through the whole awful correction period. It's better to fall into his hands than anyone else's what do you think?
0: Thanks, Fraser. Brilliant stuff. Sometimes the toughest thing about sin, once we get past confrontation and confession, consequence still remains. You see, the devil is smart. He shows us the shiny, pretty side of sin. We rarely pause to consider the long-term outcomes as we race to taste the fruit of seduction. But consequence lurks in the shadow. The fruit is rotten to the core. The worm has Hold out a home inside. I think that, too, in our day and age, we don't want to deal with consequences. We'd rather avoid any type of pain. It's the way we grew up, it's the way that we were raised punishment, judgment. We go to lengthy extremes to get away from any of it. David faced short term consequences in the death of his child with Bathsheba. Those who are hard of heart would not even blink, but rather would blame God. After all, he could have let the child live, couldn't he have? In fact, The biblical text in 2 Samuel says that the Lord struck the child, similar language to the striking of Nabal, a king who early on mistreated David before he had ascended to the throne. Perhaps the child's death is a grace. Growing up with the scandalous story of being conceived out of wedlock, your birth father murdering mom's husband is a lot. Plus, any claim to the throne or kingly support might easily be refuted, refused, and denied. The longer-term consequences, or at least the ones that weren't immediate, were still to come. Nathan, the prophet, pronounces that the sword will never depart David's house and that someone close to him will sweep, sleep with his wives in broad daylight. All of these consequences of David's sin. He has set the stage. His sons and friends can always point to this failing of David to excuse their own future behaviors. David will have to face more consequence more shame. But here's the thing that Fraser pointed out in the narration that I don't want us to miss. God's promise to be present, even in the midst of those future consequences. Friends, you and I may not feel as though we have the stomach to face the consequences for a life lived and sin committed. But if we've confessed those things, and if we've been reconciled to God, He is with us, even in the midst of those hurts and pains. He doesn't abandon us. He's not merely vindictive. He is a compassionate God, slow to anger, slow to wrath, despite what we might think or feel. God's presence in the midst of heartache and consequence is a great hope for us. David writes in another psalm, God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. See, David doesn't write these words from a vacuum he experiences God this way. David is known as a man after God's own heart. And while his life was marked with imperfection and sin and failure, he continued to strive to walk with God, to love God with his heart, mind, and soul. May we strive to do the same and God help us as we do. Friends, today, I want to close with a prayer reminding us that God promises to be present, even in the midst of our trouble, even in the midst of our consequence and our pain. Heavenly Father, it may be that I have to walk through a valley. Because of my sin, because I am a wayward sheep, I choose the shadow of death instead of the way of life. And even though I sin and I fail, keep my heart coming back to you. Come after me like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Please come, rescue me from myself, from my own destructive pattern. I won't fear evil, knowing you are with me, I won't fear death because you conquered it. I won't fear the darkness because you are the light. I believe, as David believed, that I will see the goodness of the Lord today in the land of the living and in spite of my sin. Wash me, cleanse me, and let us walk together once again. Amen. Well, this is Rev. Brad and the voice of Fraser K. coming to you from The Touchline.